Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 28 this morning. We are going to finish this book that we've been in all year. All right. It is over after this morning. Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 23, Luke writes this. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he's explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. I bet they did. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we close out this book this morning, Lord, I pray that you teach us. I pray that your spirit would step into the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our mourning, with whatever has been going on in our weekend, whatever has been going on in our week, Lord. I pray that you allow us just to sit before you and to hear. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd remove distractions and that you'd quiet our heart and allow us just to hear what you'd have to say to us. That you'd take the words of this passage, you'd take this teaching, Lord, and that you would do with it in our lives individually just as you see fit. Might you soften our hearts, might you prepare us to be responsive to you and whatever it is that you're wanting to do, Lord. We love you and we thank you. We thank you for this book. Thank you for the things that you've taught us as we've walked through it this year. And pray, Lord, that you'd help us to finish this book out strong this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, this time of year is a fun time. I feel like rumors start circulating about TV shows that are going to be canceled or renewed, all right? Uh, and so some of you guys, uh, maybe some of your favorite shows, you've been wondering if they're going to make it into next season, you're beginning to realize that they're not, right? Uh, some of you guys, in terms of rumors and circulating, I, I noticed this week, uh, it kind of went viral on Tuesday, but there was all kinds of news that Friends was coming back, right? Some of you guys may be huge Friends people, all right? But by the end of the week, all those rumors were squashed as NBC came out and said, I'm sorry, but it's not happening. Uh, but there was incredible details all about it. It was like that there was going to be four one-hour episodes. There was going to be uh, the whole crew coming back. Apparently, Jennifer Aniston was the last to sign on. Each of them signing on for about $5 million for four one-hour episodes. That's a good day's work, right? Uh, And yet, by the end of the week, NBC said, no, 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 this isn't happening at all, right? So all you guys got your hopes amped up, and then they all came crashing back down. Of course, if this is the first time you're hearing about it, uh, newsflash, right? You're welcome, right? Next week, we'll talk about more about romantic comedies of Hollywood and pregnancies that are coming out, all right? And your latest entertainment weekly news update, all right? But, uh, you know, I kind of love the seven years. I think you kind of get a sense of finales are coming, not just your finals, but even the finales of your favorite TV shows, all right? And so I, often I think, too, that the TV shows that have been the most popular, that as they end out, I feel like there's more pressure on those shows than any other shows that have a finale that really captures and ties this thing off with a bang, right? In fact, for me, I think more often than not, finales disappoint. I'll tell you guys, my two greatest finale disappointments of TV shows of all time were Lost and Seinfeld. 
for the Pete's sakes, loss of all the questions that ever got unpacked in all those years never got answered by the end of that stinking TV show, right? I'm so frustrated. Uh, and then even Seinfeld, absolute disappointment to me, right? I, that show is a cult classic. I love that show. That's why I quote from it and have clips from it like every other week, basically, all right? Uh, but the finale could not have been more disappointing, right? Loss left us with few questions answered. Seinfeld left us with few laughs. And that finale episode is just one disappointment after another. But finales are hard. In fact, even as we jump into really what I think is the finale in Acts 28 of the book of Acts, I'll tell you, this is not at all the story I would have written to end the book, all right? In fact, as I was kind of walking through the story this week, trying to really think about it, the first part of the week, it was just flat and boring to me, right? If I were to have penned the ending of the book of Acts, here's what I would have had. I would have had Paul showing up toe-to-toe with a great showdown with Emperor Caesar, all right? I would have had Paul winning that showdown. I would have had Paul convincing Caesar to come to Christ. I would have had Caesar convincing the Roman Empire that Christianity was the right way. And I would have had the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. That is not at all what happens in Acts 28, all right? By the time this passage ends and this book ends, we have Paul sitting in house arrest for two years and Caesar is nowhere, to me, Acts 28 felt like just a giant dud as it ended, all right? Which is really not a great way to get you guys all amped up, interested in Acts 28 this morning, all right? Uh, but the more I began to think about it, the more I began to wrestle with it, I, I began to realize that really Acts 28 is not a finale. It is not a closure at all to the story at all. Acts 28 is merely but an arrow pointing to really a spinoff that will be incredibly successful of a new show that will come out of the book of Acts known as The Church Age, all right? Acts 28, it really is not a finale that wraps up the story of Acts. Really, it is but an arrow pointing to a whole new story that will unfold that really spins off of the book of Acts known as The Church and what the church does, how the church moves forward from here. And so really, Acts 28... It really is not really this kind of finale that really ties everything off it, but it kind of points toward a whole new story that's going to unpack and unfold from the book of Acts, all right? And really, in, in light of that, I think Acts 28 really is an incredibly fitting ending. It's going to give you and I three basic reminders that are absolutely key for the life of the church as they move on with the task and the mission that they've been given. Three basic reminders that we've heard before as we've kind of walked through the book of Acts, but are absolutely critical and key. And the first is this. The book of Acts is going to end in Acts 28 with a basic reminder that you and I are not alone. Paul was not alone as he ends up in Rome, and you and I are not alone at all either. And yet, I think in that reminder, it is absolutely contrasted from most TV finales ever, right? By the time most TV finales end, I feel so lonely and sad, right? Uh, When Jack Bauer went off the grid for one last time, never to be seen again... I felt like a part of me died, right? Uh, when when uh, Downton Abbey ends this year and no more seasons to come, I'm sorry. I'm lying to you, all right? I don't know about that, all right? Uh, uh, you know, but when Ra- Rachel and Ross and all the people of Friends took off, you know, and you felt a sense of void. People that have been in your living room once a week for years at a time that you felt you saw grow and develop and change that were part of not just your life, but you felt like you were a part of their life, and then they're gone. It feels so lonely and so sad. And don't laugh at me as if I'm the only pathetic one, all right? I know you guys all cried in those shows. I know that's true, all right? Every single one of us has that feeling, though, a show that we've loved, characters that we've identified with. We had some friends who in their wedding vows, check this out. They actually mentioned the characters of Office in their wedding vows. For Pete's sakes, that's going a little too far, right? Uh, but Office felt like a part of their life, felt like a part of their relationship. And so when those guys all splintered to the four corners of the wor- earth, they're going to be incredibly sad, right? But for every single one of us, that's the same, right? Finales leave us in that place where we feel lonely, we feel sad, we feel like we've lost friendships and relationships. But in Acts 28, in this ending story of the book of Acts, really it's going to be completely contrasted from that idea. Luke is going to leave us with a great sense that Paul was not alone and therefore you and I are not alone either. I want you guys to pick up the story actually beginning in verse 11. Luke writes, at the 
end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putulioi. Putioli. I'm so glad to not have tough names anymore. All right. Uh, Verse 14. There we found some brethren and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they, were, when they heard about us, they came from there as far as the market of Apias and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. Verse 16, and when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Verses 11 and 16 kind of give you a sense of Paul's arrival into Rome and his reception. Other than his residential quarters that he has, a sense of isolation and solitariness, it was the only thing that said to him that he was alone. In fact, he's going to be welcoming people left and right into those quarters that he'll be under house arrest. And so in in every way, shape, and form, Paul realized he was not alone. People came from incredibly far to come welcome him and to thank him for coming and that they were excited to hear more from him. And so he realized he was not alone. I think it wasn't just Paul who realized that. I think also for us. Think about the fact that from Acts, the church will continue on carrying on the mission that Jesus gave the apostles in Acts 1 to be the witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And really, if you think about even the Great Commission that is kind of a repeat of that, what does Jesus say at the very end of the Great Commission? He tells his apostles, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he ends it with a great encouragement, right? He says, for I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as the apostles went on with it, ascended Jesus Christ. And as the church spins off from the storyline of the book of Acts, no one is alone, right? You and I are not alone if we know Jesus Christ. Jesus has said, I am with you to the end of the age. You are not alone in this finale. In fact, Elijah, the prophet, will have the same exact experience. He's, he's in, uh, fighting incredible opposition in the book of 1 Kings. And in that moment, he says to himself, he says to God, actually he says, God, I am alone. I'm the only one who wants to know you, who wants to walk with you and who wants to proclaim you. And I feel so discouraged and so alone. And God comes back to him on the heels of that comment and says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and the false gods and the false worships and the false idols. He says, I've kept 7,000 who also know me and want to walk with me. Elijah, you are not alone. You may feel like you're alone. You may feel like you're weary and tired of doing good, tired of pressing on, tired of grinding and doing the right thing. And you feel like you're isolated and you feel like you're alone. And God comes to Elijah and he comes to you and I and says, no, you are not alone. Peter recognizes this is part of what the enemy does to you and I. First chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, Peter writes, speaking to the church that is scattered out, that is encountering incredible opposition where they feel isolated and scattered. And he says to them, resist him, speaking of the devil, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren throughout the world. Peter comes to the church of, uh, and says, hey, look, you may feel like you're alone. You may feel like you're the only one experiencing this great difficulty, but realize what you are experiencing is being shared around across the world by the other churches and the other brethren that are here and walking with Jesus Christ. God says, Elijah, you are not alone. Peter says to the church, you are not the only one that's experiencing this. Continue to be faithful. Continue to walk with me because I've kept people in your life and around you who are experiencing the same kind of thing. I think one of the things that the enemy does for you and I is he makes us believe that we are alone in trying to walk with God. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your set of roommates. Maybe it's uh, in the job or the organization, sorority or fraternity that you're part of, a sense that continues to be deafening for you that you feel like you're alone. I think as Jesus would ascend and as the church would take over from the apostles, great fear that maybe they were alone. Maybe they didn't have what it took. 
And I think it's fascinating with what God does here for the Apostle Paul and what he does for the church and for you and I as he reminds us that we are not alone. And at this point in the semester, I think it's incredible encouragement when we feel weary and we feel tired and maybe that we feel like we're the only one keeping at this. Continue to walk with the Lord. Continue to try to worship on a Sunday morning. Continue to walk in small groups. Continue to try to walk and do accountability with people. Continue to press people and encourage people to walk with Jesus Christ. I want to remind you this morning that you are not alone. It may feel like that. And let me challenge you in the midst of those circumstances, if you feel that, let me remind you, do not believe that lie. That is an attack of the enemy that wants to isolate you and discourage you because if he can isolate you and discourage you, then you will not continue forward with what he's called you to do. And the greatest way to stop you is to discourage you and to isolate you. So if you are in that place where you feel like you are alone, let me challenge you. Ask the Lord to open your eyes so that you can see the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Who is it God has put in your organization, in your family, in your roommates, in your sorority, in your fraternity, uh, in your job, uh, that someone else is trying to walk with the Lord and you may not know right now. But ask the Lord to open your eyes so that you can see that you can see that there's someone else who's wanting to walk with God. And what an encouragement, an incredible, uh, uplifting moment that is, all right? It's an incredible opportunity because if you and I feel like we are alone, we will not follow through on the second and on the other two things that this finale will tell us. If we realize that we are with uh, the Lord Jesus himself and we realize that, that his people surround us, that we will have the um, encouragement and the community to continue to press forward in the two things that Acts 28 will call us to be about. And the first is this, that we are to be those that are waiting on Jesus Christ. I'll tell you guys, as I kind of walk through the book of Acts uh, and really into chapter 28 this week, I'll tell you guys, really, I thought this thing would have been awesome if Caesar would have showed up, right? Uh, if Caesar could have showed up, we could have had the showdown moment. Man, we've spent five chapters passing from one judge to another, one trial to another, one shipwreck to one island, waiting and moving towards Caesar in Rome. And so in Acts 28, man, I've just had the sense of, man, let's see Caesar, right? Let's just see that moment, all right? What's fascinating is we don't see Caesar. In fact, even as we watch Paul and his response in Acts 28, well, I think one of the things we realize is that I don't think Paul was waiting primarily for Caesar. For Paul, it wasn't about Caesar at all. For Paul, it was about an opportunity to continue to share the gospel wherever he was. And what Paul was waiting for was not Caesar and not a final vertication and a final trial, but what Paul was waiting for primarily was Jesus. Seriously, watch this. Look at verse 30. And Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and he was welcoming all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. As Paul was waiting, what was he waiting for? Two full years, no Caesar, and yet he still seems on course. I think ultimately Paul was not waiting on something lesser. He was waiting on something greater, which was the return of Jesus Christ. So even in house arrest, he's he's particularly not asking, hey, where's Caesar? (laughs) When's Caesar showing up? In those moments, he's continuing to speak of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ, because that is what he's waiting for primarily. I think for Paul, he wasn't waiting on lesser things. He was waiting on the best thing. I want to ask you this morning, even as you think about your own circumstances and your situation, what is it you're primarily bent about and waiting for? What is it that your heart is longing and set on that is just waiting for its fulfillment and its anticipation? Some of you guys engage just looking forward and waiting on marriage, waiting on that wedding day. For some of you guys, you're just waiting for a first date, right? For some of you guys, are you waiting for finals to be over? Because once finals is over, then life can commence and life can open up and you can have all that you hope for, right? Or is it graduation? Is it a job? What is it? Getting to camp, getting on a trip this summer? What is it that you are waiting on? Because if you will wait on lesser things, then you will be disappointed every single time. 
And when you wait on lesser things, a kind of hurt and a kind of frustration begins to set in that frankly you could avoid if you had waited on what was best. I had a good friend who years ago in seminary had ordered a computer and it was supposed to arrive about the near the time when the last projects were being wrapped up. And so it was a Saturday morning and he was working uh, on the Saturday as feverishly as he could to finish a project and a paper so that he could take his wife out on a date that evening. All right. And so he's working feverishly on this uh, project as he's walking through it, uh, getting close to the end of it, kind of tunneled in zero, uh, you know, kind of tunneled in focus on nothing else but this paper. All right. And then the laptop that he had ordered showed up right after lunch. All right. His wife had been gone in the morning knowing that he was focused on this paper, buying a new dress for their date and getting her hair done, all right? And then the laptop shows up in the afternoon and she comes home from everything and notices him in the living room. He hasn't finished his paper. He's put it aside. He's absolutely tunneled in, focused and exhilarated and focused on this new laptop and all of his bells and whistles and checking it out, all right? She asks him, hey, have you finished your paper? He goes, no, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. But I'm just so pumped about this laptop, all right? She goes into the bedroom and she starts to get ready for the date. And about 10 minutes before they're supposed to leave, she comes out and she says, hey, don't you think you want to get ready? I don't want us to be late. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'll get ready. It'll take me like five minutes. Not a big deal. You know, we're just kind of going on a date tonight. Not a big deal, right? And then she says, hey, how do you think I look? She's in her new dress. She's got a new hairdo. My friend is tunneled in on his laptop, all right? He does not look up and he says, honey, you look great. All right. She turns around, dejected, shoulder slumped, walks back into the bedroom, and by waiting on something lesser, he missed what was most important, right? And he then suffered a kind of hurt that he wasn't even expecting, right? Because he would sleep on the couch that night, right? And day night did not go great, all right? Because uh, here's the deal, though. He missed what was most important, right? What he should have been waiting on, what he should have been focused on was his own wife and the date they would have. And instead, he got distracted on something lesser. And because of that, a hurt and a frustration came that could have been avoided, and I think you and I do the same thing all the time, right? Our hearts get wrapped up in something and we begin to wait on lesser things. Let me ask you, whatever it is that your heart is set on, whatever it is that you are looking forward to, does the return of Christ get eclipsed by that which you're waiting for? Truly, what is it you're excited about? What is it that you're bent on? What is it that you're hanging on? And how does it compare to the way that you're waiting for Jesus Christ and his return? For Paul, it would have been very easy for him to be waiting on the arrival of Caesar, <laughs> and his situation to be resolved, and for him not to be in uncertainty. Instead, in the midst of that uncertainty, what he was bent on was the return of Jesus Christ. And so at every moment, he continued to speak of that person's return, because that was what he was waiting on more than anything else. Paul was waiting on the best thing. And yet, I think it's so hard for us. We get so distracted by what seems not pressing, not urgent. And we begin to wait, and we begin to get enraptured by lesser things. What is it you're waiting on? Why is it that the return of Jesus Christ seems so unexciting to us, so unurgent to us? It's interesting, as you look at the New Testament, those who are writing the New Testament letters seem like the return of Christ is an imminent reality, that it is near at every turn. They're so bent on the return of Jesus Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, and his writing and resolving of all wrongs. For the New Testament epistle writers, that is what they were bent on, that is what they were focused on, and that's what Paul seems to be focused on, even in his last days and these last verses in the book of Acts. It's still Jesus that he's waiting on, not Caesar. Not the resolution of his trial, not the resolution of the public opinion. What he's waiting on is Jesus. He was bent on it. How about you? Why is it that the return of Jesus Christ doesn't stoke us? Why is that? Do we not believe it? Do we not get excited about it? Does it seem so unpractical or so uh, non-urgent? What is it? For Paul, he was so bent on that. It was everything for him. In fact, Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, he says this, 
We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul says, hey, we are groaning, we are struggling, we are wrestling. And here's what it is that that longing shows. It is ultimately a longing for the redemption of our bodies and the adoption of us by Jesus Christ. He'll go on in Philippians 3 and he'll say this, that for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a savior who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. This is Paul of Philippians, Romans saying, hey, here is why you and I are yearning. Here's what we are ultimately yearning for. It's not laptops, it's not dates, it's not weddings, it's not jobs. Ultimately, what we're ultimately longing for ought to be the return of Jesus Christ, our adoption into his family, a marriage with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the resolution and the redemption of our physical bodies so that we would be glorified to be all that we were ever intended to be. That is what we're longing for. That is what we should be waiting for with all bated breath because that is the best thing that we could ever wait for. And when we begin to wait for that, it begins to change the very ways that we live, the very way that we see our life. Because for Paul, as those who were waiting for Jesus Christ, it would also led to a connection to the fact that he was also witnessing of Christ. Since what he was waiting most for was the return of Jesus Christ, and it was also what he was proclaiming in the loudest and the most frequent thing. You and I wait for things that we get so excited about, which is why we proclaim them from the hilltops, whether it's a wedding date to come, a job, a graduation, whatever it may be. We proclaim, we witness to what we're waiting for. And for so many of us, I think we may not be witnessing of Jesus Christ because frankly, we are not that excited about it. We're not that excited about him. We're not excited about what he's done in our life. We're not that excited about his return. And for Paul, he was that excited. He was that bent on Jesus Christ, which is why at every turn, he's proclaiming the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Paul, it was huge. In fact, it was really interesting. Acts 28 will end right where Acts 1 began. The very two commands that we get here at the end of the book of Acts are the very two commands that we got at the very beginning of Acts. I want you guys to flip real quick, if you will, back to Acts chapter 1. Notice the ironic similarity. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. The very two commands we get here at the end are the very two commands we get at the beginning of the book. Why is that? Look with me, if you will, at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Notice the, the symmetry here. Acts 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Luke says, Gathering them, them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. <laughs> For what the father had promised, which he said, you heard of for me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? The apostles were excited about the kingdom that would be restored by the the king of kings. They were bent on that. But the issue was the timing would not come about in the timing that they had hoped for. It was going to be postponed. And while it was postponed, then Jesus gives them new marching orders. Verse eight, as they wait, here's what they're to do. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That ultimately, as they were waiting, they were going to be witnesses. And Acts 1 starts just as Acts 28 28 ends. We're going to see Paul again waiting, waiting for two years. And as he waits, what's he doing? Every opportunity he can, he's just witnessing to what Jesus Christ has done and who he is at every turn. Notice, if you will, back to 28, beginning in verse 17, Luke tells us that after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For Paul, he had no beef with the nation of Israel. For Paul, he was not upset, frustrated with the nation of Israel. He was very much in love with his people and with the nation. 
And for Paul, I think he really wanted to make the point too that ultimately Christianity and the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done is not anti-Jewish. And as he began to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone, he wanted everyone to realize the gospel was for them. So he starts with the Jew, but by the time we get to the end of this, he's going to end up with the Gentiles. He says in 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. <laughs> Paul will end this section basically uh, with the idea that the gospel goes to the Jews and it goes to the Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone. Paul didn't care who it was. Paul would speak to anyone and everyone at any time. In fact, it's not just that he's going to go to all people, but the gospel will go to, in any situation. I want you guys to think back to the book of Acts if you've been with us this year and think about how diverse the settings and the stories have been. Ultimately, even as we walk through this book for a whole year, I was thinking, how in the world are we going to preach a whole book for a whole year? But as you walk through this story, while some of the themes are similar all the way through the book, yet so many of the situations are so different. If you think for a moment, we saw the gospel proclaimed in the midst of miracles and in the midst of mayhem. In the midst of God healing men and women, in the midst of God proclaiming his greatness to the nations, we saw miracle after miracle after miracle, but we also saw crowd after crowd try to stone the apostles, right? We saw the apostles in the high times and we saw them in the low times. We saw when people were celebrating them and when people were trying to stone them, right? But in any and every situation, the apostles continued to proclaim the gospel to whoever would listen. Not just in the midst of miracles and mayhem, but also in the midst of harbors and handcuffs, right? We've seen Paul at sea. We've seen him chained. It doesn't matter the scenario, the situation, whether he was chained to a guard, whether he was on a ship, or whether he'll be in house arrest later on here. He continues to proclaim the gospel in any situation that he's in. Not just that, but also we saw Paul blind, and we've seen him beaten, and he continues to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't matter the opposition. It doesn't matter the response. He continued to be faithful even to the end of the book as he waits in house arrest. Finally, he continues to preach the gospel. And then lastly, we've seen it even in collisions and even in councils, right? God will collide with Paul on a road to Damascus in Acts 9. And then even in Acts 15, as the uh, leaders of the church wrestle with what God was doing, whether it was in collisions on a roadside or whether it was councils uh, not on roadsides, right? It didn't matter. The gospel of what God was doing was continuing to be proclaimed in any and every situation. I'll tell you guys, for me, this is really, really hard. <laughs> I like, I'm a guy that likes to compartmentalize and likes to segment life off. There are times to preach the gospel. There are times not to, all right? I was reminded even just last night, uh, we had an op- Marcy and I had an opportunity over spring break to take off for San Antonio. My parents had given us some money for Christmas, and we got away. We got to spend some of the money. got Mavs and Spurs tickets all right, during spring break. Awesome game, all right? We got a hotel. We got money for food, and my parents kept our kids, and so we just kind of got away for like a 24-hour date. But the key piece of that was us getting to go to the Mavs game, all right? It was kind of my Christmas gift. I was stoked. I'm a Dallas guy. Even the Mavs were awful this year, all right? Uh, but we were stoked about the game, and we get there, and sure enough, would you believe it, we sit down next to a guy who was just a chatterbox, all right? Uh, incredibly gregarious, incredibly friendly, incredibly talkative, all right? Talkative the place and to the extent that he wants eye contact, right? So uh, the last thing I wanted to do spending good money on seats was do this, right? Talking to a dude, right? And so by the first quarter, my wife, who's always walking with the Lord and sensitive to his spirit, is, is engaging the guy well. But over in my heart, I've remained courteous, but I'm going, Lord, really? Really? <laughs> right now, Right? It's the Mav Spurs, right? I want to watch this game and be dialed into it, right? And so by the second quarter, finally, the Lord kind of got a hold of my heart, and we began to engage this guy. And by the second quarter, this guy, of course, when he finds out I'm a pastor, right, it kind of changes the conversation, right? And so all of a sudden, we can begin to talk about church, about God, about Jesus. And before you know it, it's not even halftime, and we've gotten into the full-blown communication of what the gospel is about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. 
Of course, it was a little bit crazy and weird. This isn't the situation I would have drawn because one moment we're going, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? And the next moment I'm going, that's traveling. Come on, right? We're just screaming, right? Back and forth to the gospel, more screaming, more gospel, more screaming, right? This isn't how I would have drawn up the evangelistic conversation, right? But in any and every situation, Paul will say, be ready in season and out of season. Always be ready to have an answer for the faith and the hope that you have. And it may not always look like you draw it up. It sure wasn't for me that night. It took me about a quarter before I finally began to get adjusted emotionally to that was what was going to happen that night. That's what the Lord was trying to do, all right? I'm a little slow on the uptick at times, all right? And maybe you guys are too. In any and every situation, Paul was willing to be continue to proclaim the gospel message of what Jesus had done and who he was. That Jesus was descended from the Father that he's put in, onto human earth, that he was uh, human uh, incarnate, that he carried on human flesh, and yet he was from God. And that he would die in our place so that we could be reconciled and redeemed to him. And apart from who Jesus is and what Jesus had done, we would have no opportunity to have a relationship with God. Jesus was the starting spot. And ultimately, in any and every situation, to whomever they were talking to, the apostles through the book of Acts are continuing to proclaim that message, that hope, that grace, that opportunity. Ultimately, Paul kind of gives us a clue even to that in Romans chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says this, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul kind of gives us a little clue in Romans 1 and says, I was eager to get to Rome and to preach this gospel. From Romans to Acts, he was eager, fascinated, bent up, set on getting to Rome so he could preach the gospel. Why? Because he was so confident of the power of the gospel to transform and to save men and women. That the gospel can do something that nothing else can. The message that Jesus Christ has died and been resurrected and that his death and his death alone provides new hope and eternal life. It is that message that is transformative and does something to people's lives that absolutely transforms them. Not only so they can enter into a relationship with them, but so that their lives can be forever changed. It is that message that Paul was so bent up and excited about and he wasn't ashamed about it. And so in any and every situation, he continued to press forward. It's fascinating too, as you think about the book of Acts, I heard one time someone said, you can tell the point of a story ultimately by the first word of the book and the last word of the book. All right. If you take the first word of the book and the last word of the book, you get the point of the story, which actually kind of sounds absolutely preposterous, right? But for the book of Acts, it's really fascinating. The first word of the book of Acts is the, (laughs) that's not going to be helpful, right? But the last word of the book of Acts is unhindered. Interesting. The unhindered. But if you go from verse 1-1 all the way to 28, at the end of the book, what you get is they unhindered, which actually I think is an incredible conclusion and summary of what the point of the book of Acts is. It is a story of the unhindered. Think about all the situations that Paul and the apostles find themselves in. And despite those situations, the gospel continues to go out. God continues to move, continues to work. It is a story of the unhindered one of God himself who is unhindered no matter the circumstances and limitations of life. But it is also a story of the apostles and the church as they move out who themselves will be the unhindered. That no matter the circumstances, no matter what's happening, that God continues to move the gospel out and he'll continue to use his church, which is why Jesus will say to Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Ultimately, Paul says to the church that he's going to accomplish something through the church that cannot be stopped. It is not just Jesus who, in a sense, is the unhindered, but it is the church. It is you and I, if we know Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you this morning this. What are the circumstances and limitations in your life that you see as 
closed doors that God cannot work around. What are those things right now as you continue to look at it, whether you're looking for an internship or a relationship or whatever it may be, whether life turns in a direction that you didn't imagine, whether a door shuts in your face that you weren't anticipating, whether there's a limitation, chains, a shipwreck, whatever it may be that you never foresaw, never would have drawn up. And do you believe that God is limited in that? Do you believe that God is checked because of that and that he cannot accomplish what he's wanting to do? point of the book of Acts is that it is a story of the unhindered. It is a story in which we realize that God is not hindered by those seeming limitations, those seeming unideal circumstances, but God continues to accomplish his purposes even in the non-ideal. God continues to accomplish his purposes in any and every situation, no matter the circumstance, no matter the closed door, no matter the difficulty. In fact, it is often in and through those more difficult moments that God's power is seen all the more astonishingly because he can do in hard times what you and I can't even imagine he could even do in the good times, right? That's the story of the book of Acts, the story of the unhindered. God can do what you and I can never imagine even in the most difficult of times because God is not hindered by circumstances and limitations. So I want to ask you this morning, even as we wrap up, wrap up this book, as you look at the next few weeks, what are the chains in your life? I mean, let me challenge you guys in the midst of being chained to a library carol and a library desk for weeks at a time here coming with no sleep, right? Let me challenge you to open your eyes to see who you are chained next to, all right? You're going to spend hours at a time in a place that you would so desire not to be, right? Worse than a prison cell known as a library, right? Uh, Open your eyes to see who God may have put right beside you for hours at a time who's equally uncaffeinated, right? Uh, provide them a new sense of hope, provide them a new sense of calling, provide them a new sense of what God has done for them. Maybe you guys are going to be chained to coworkers this summer that you never would have picked, never would have wanted. Provide them an opportunity to learn and to begin to see that they have a new debt that's been completely canceled. That God has canceled the debt and they begin to realize and begin to experientially see what grace looks like, what it smells like, and how it acts. And maybe you are the only gospel that they will ever hear just by the way that you walk, the way that you live in front of them. Maybe for you, it's family and friends or roommates, people that you feel chained to, circumstances you feel chained in that you cannot imagine how to get out of. Ask the Lord of the question, what is it you're doing here? How is it you would have me to open my eyes and see what you're trying to do? How can I open my mouth to proclaim what you are doing? The situations, the relationships that seem the most constricting, the most limiting are often where God is working the most powerfully. So ask him to help you to open your eyes so that you can see and not miss where he is. Paul doesn't miss it. Paul wasn't waiting for Caesar. He was waiting ultimately for the return of Jesus Christ. He wasn't waiting on lesser things. And because of that, even as he waited, he was proclaiming that which was most significant and the best of the best things. There was one who loved us from the moment he created us, the moment that he foresaw us, and that he had given his only son's life so that we could be redeemed and reconciled to him in the midst of the times that Paul was waiting, but circumstances that he couldn't control. The gospel continued to go out because he was faithful to proclaim it and God continued to do amazing things. That's the story of the book of Acts. If we've learned anything this year as we've walked through this book for since late August, all right, people, uh, we've learned that hopefully. That God is at work even in limitations, that God is at work even in circumstances that aren't ideal, and that as we wait on the return of Jesus Christ, we are to be people who are witnessing of him who loves us, who has created us, who has died to redeem us, and who eventually will return. That is our vocation, that is our calling, no matter whether we are students, whether we are single, whether we are married, whether we will take off from this place and graduate and step into a job, it does not matter your vocation, that is your calling in whatever vocation you will step into. To be those who are waiting and those who are proclaiming and witnessing to the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it is him for whom we have life and we know what life is all about. 
Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you greatly for what you've done on our behalf. I thank you that in you, we know what life looks like. We know what life, how is it too is to be lived. I thank you that through the book of Acts, we see that your spirit is completely unhindered in the midst of one circumstance, one difficulty after another, that you continue to work and that your church has been given a mission and a calling that you will bring about to its fulfillment. And men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will eventually assemble around a throne to worship you and to proclaim your greatness and to exalt you. And so, Father, even as we end this morning, as we have an opportunity to respond in worship, Lord, I pray that we could sing to that purpose. What you've called the church to be, what you've called us to be, how you've called us to respond. And I pray that you'd come in the midst of our hearts and our minds, in the midst of the stories of our lives, in the midst of the circumstances and the limitations and the chains. And I pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd show us that you are unhindered, that you can save, that you can do more than we could ever imagine, Lord. We love you. 